0: We're going to continue in our series on fellowship, which is within a series on the pathways of grace, those means of grace by which we walk with God. So we've spent time talking about the Word of God and prayer. We're going to spend time later in the summer talking about sharing our faith or witnessing. But right now we're in a section on fellowship. Fellowship. So we're going to be out of Ephesians chapter 4. If you remember from our last time, fellowship is our partnership together in the Gospel. It's living together as God's community. It's our participation together in the life of God. centered on the good news of Christ. So all those different words are used for fellowship. Fundamentally, basically, it's living in Christian community as God's people. And I wanted to spend some time talking about the purposes and practice of biblical fellowship. And I can't think of many passages better than Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 we'll be highlighting. So let's pray as we prepare to hear God's Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. You've given us Your very Word. Thank You for Your love and Your care for us and the life-giving power of Your Word the life-sustaining power. We thank You. And I ask You, Lord, that You would do just this. Give us life. Impart life. Guide us in the life You call us to and empower us for. Speak to us and lead us, God. We give You this time and give You myself, Lord, as Your servant. Thank You for the blood of Christ that covers my sins and the power of the Spirit in us and through, through us as well. So we're dependent on You and we look forward to what You would do. So lead us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 4, verse 11. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. The title of the message is A Cosmic Skunk Works. You might see in your bulletin notes there, and you're probably scratching your head thinking, What in the world is a cosmic skunk works? Has anyone ever heard the term skunk works before? The engineers raise their hands, and the technical folks, and some others. Skunkworks is the pet name for Lockheed Martin's Advanced Development Programs Unit. They are the group that came up with a lot of specialty aircraft that really have changed the world in many ways. It's a group of highly gifted, highly motivated engineers and other workers who work together as an innovative team without the usual constraints of bureaucracy so it's a specialty team that comes together to work on the rapid and advanced development of really world-changing aircraft. So they're responsible for a number of notable aircraft, if you're an aircraft fan. The P-38, anyone a World War II aircraft fan? The P-38 was that dual-tailed aircraft that was the most successful fighter in the Pacific theater. They came up with that. They also came up with the first uh, operational jet, I think the P-80. The U-2 spy plane which uh, is somewhat notorious, the one that was shot down. They came up with a better one after that, the SR-71 blackbird, that titanium-skinned bird that was used for like two or three decades. Those guys came up with that one. The stealth fighter, we know the stealth fighter, the F-22 raptor, and currently they're working on the joint strike fighter, all done by this group, the Skunk Works at Lockheed Martin. There's something that's really appealing about a Skunk Works, particularly for me, I guess, as a former engineer, The idea of bringing together the best and brightest and and having them really focus on coming up with something innovative and and really life-changing. Well, this passage in Ephesians 4 is about a cosmic skunk works. It's about a team that God has assembled of, of highly gifted people, very diverse people. He's brought them together to work on something as a team that is indeed life-changing, is indeed something worthy. That is, the maturity of the body of Christ. We are all part of this skunk works, this cosmic skunk works that God calls us to. And we are called as Christians to participate in this cosmic skunk works and we use the word biblical fellowship to describe this skunk works. We are called to biblical fellowship and biblical fellowship is the greatest team effort in all of history. It is the greatest team effort in all of history. When God looks at history and He looks at the world, He looks at people, He isn't very impressed with the Lockheed Martin skunk works comparably. He isn't very impressed with P38s. I'm not saying He doesn't care about those things. What impresses God is His skunk works. It is His work of biblical fellowship. This team that He's put together and given grace to, to work on the thing that is most worthy. God's people together shining His glory in Christ. So let's take a a little bit of time to look at this biblical fellowship and this effort. We're going to do that actually in two messages. One today and one in, in two weeks where we look at biblical fellowship. We're going to look at both what the team effort is and what the team is producing. Both what is done, how the team works, and what the team produces. So we're going to look at this particular passage to learn more about it. And let me set some context for this passage in Ephesians 4. Ephesians is a wonderful book, and this passage is a a hinge section. If we know what a hinge does, it connects two things, right? And so this is a hinge section. It connects two sections in Ephesians. The first section in Ephesians is about the Gospel. About the good news of Jesus Christ. About His life, death, and resurrection and the impact, the truth, the implications that come immediately with that truth. So the first three chapters or so are just full of wonderful, amazing statements. Chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because of the Gospel. Because of Christ." God's people are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Later on, it says, In Him we have redemption. We've been bought back from our sin to Him. We have redemption through His blood, forgiveness for our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, this free gift in Christ. It continues in the first section. In chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So Paul continues to bring the truth of the Gospel and the implications of that truth for our lives. It goes on, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wonderful news. Wonderful truth for our lives. I mean, it's just jam-packed, this part of Ephesians. It goes on in chapter 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we're forgiven. We're redeemed. We have every spiritual blessing. We belong to Him. He has poured out grace. He's rescued us and He's made us members of His household. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the sort of stuff that the beginning of Ephesians is full of, wonderful, life-changing, cosmic truth. Then there's this hinge passage, and then the rest of Ephesians goes on. The rest of Ephesians is really about the application of those truths. What it means to actually walk it out in the nitty-gritty. And so the rest of Ephesians is full of very specific and wonderful commands. Wonderful exhortations. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Chapter six: Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the second part of Ephesians, the second half of chapter 4 and on, contains very specific instructions, very specific applications that flow from the Gospel and its truth. And so our section today in chapter 4 is a hinge between these two sections. It's a hinge, and what it talks about is biblical fellowship. About the idea of relating to one another in the light of the Gospel, walking out in a very practical, real way, the truths of the Gospel. Biblical fellowship really is that hinge between the Gospel and Gospel truth and everyday life. It is that practice of helping each other and walking together with each other in the truths of the Gospel in very real ways. So this section is put here with much wisdom. It connects these two things. So, we're going to talk from this. We're going to learn about what is biblical fellowship, what are its key elements, what are its mechanisms, how does it work, but also what does it do, what does it produce, what's the goal of biblical fellowship. Actually, in these verses, 11 through 16, it contains all that. And I thought I could do it in one message, but as I prepare it, I recognize I just can't. There's just no way. Uh, Maybe someone more eloquent and gifted than I could do it, but with my limitations, I need to divide it into two messages. So we're going to first look at the goal of biblical fellowship. We're going to kind of do it backwards. We're going to look at what biblical fellowship produces. The next time we will look at how it works. What are the mechanisms? What are the workings of biblical fellowship? So... Walking through the verses a little bit. Verse 11 talks about these gifts, these people. Team leaders, really. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. These are the team leaders. Their job is to lead the team and to provide the team, to enable the team to do its job. Their, their job is not to do the work. Their job is to prepare the team members to do the work. So verse 11 is about the team leaders. We'll, we will talk a little more later on that. Verse 12 talks about the team members who do the work. Equipped by the team leaders, the team members. Now that is you and I. That is all of us as a church. We are the ones who do the ministry. All of us are ministers. Actually, it would be somewhat inappropriate to call a pastor a minister because his job is to equip the ministers, which is you guys. You are all ministers. You're the ones called to do the work. And then verse 13 hits on our our focus for today. The team leaders are to lead the team members to produce the team efforts, to produce the team results. And those results are in verse 13 until, it says, this is the result, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What biblical fellowship is producing, is meant to produce is right here in verse 13. We are to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So we are, that speaks of the Gospel, to mature manhood. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, you might be wondering, mature manhood, what do you mean? Is that the goal of mature manhood? I mean, I kind of do that on my own as time goes by. At least my hair gets grayer and my face gets more wrinkled. Is that what it's talking about, mature manhood? No, it means something else. It doesn't even necessarily mean something masculine per se. I think we the way to understand what mature manhood is is to look at the second part of verse 13. The goal is mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of, Who? Christ. So mature manhood is to look like Christ. That's mature manhood. That's the goal. Is to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To be a people who are full of goodness and wisdom and the glory of God even as Christ is. So it's Christ-likeness. So mature manhood is Christ-likeness. That is the goal of biblical fellowship. That is the goal here in the church. That is the goal of, in many ways, the goal of the whole book of Ephesians. That is the goal of the gospel. The working of the gospel is to produce a people who reflect Christ, who, who image Him, who show forth His glory. We talked in communion about our union with Christ. The body is called the body for a reason. It's called Christ's body. We are Christ's body. We are one with Him. And we are the ones who are to reflect His glory, to demonstrate to all of heaven, all spiritual entities, all all creation, the glory of God in the church. So the goal is mature manhood. God is calling us to be part of a team to produce something more fantastic than anything in the entire universe. He wants to produce a people who are mature in the Gospel to the measure of the fullness of Christ. So it's a Gospel-centered effort. It's a Gospel-centered experience. It's a Gospel-empowered effort. And He wants to produce a people who are mature. He wants to produce a people, plural, who are mature. You see, the goal is, is a mature man. You see that in the text? He's talking to a church that's full of individuals. And he says that the, the goal of biblical fellowship the team members, the team leaders are given, the team members do their work, the gospel is is having its way to produce many mature men. Is that what it says? Many mature men and women. I, the goal is until we all attain to mature men and women. Is that what it says in your Bible? Is it plural or singular? It, it's, it's, it's man. Does it say man? It's plural in a sense, but it's one. It's man. It's, it's, it's one. God, when He looks at His church and He sees the goal in mind, He does not think in terms of individuals primarily he thinks in terms of the corporate group christlikeness in god's mind is not individual It it is corporate christlikeness it's the people of god together imaging christ and i believe the converse that goes with that is true the corollary with that is true that there cannot be full christlikeness without a corporate body. There cannot be full Christ likeness. There cannot be full maturity with just an individual. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying because individual Christ likeness is very important. And I'm not saying, well, oh, great, now I can go do whatever I want as long as we as a group are Christ like. That's, that's not what I mean. In order to have a Christ like group, in order to have the body be mature, yes, we need individuals who are Christ like. But God's goal here is a group goal. He wants. Christ-likeness as a group. He wants his church, certainly his church universal is being spoken of here, but this is a letter written to the church in Ephesus. And so the church universal is comprised of the visible church, local churches like ours. So his mindset, God's mindset through the Scriptures is, is to produce a mature people, a mature man, so that we as one, as a church, would be mature in Christ. So that people would not comment so much, oh boy, I love that church. It's full of Christ-like people. There's many individuals in that church who I think are Christ-like. That that wouldn't be the first thing they say. What they would say is, that church is very Christ-like. Those people as a whole are incredibly Christ-like. Through their interconnections, through their Gospel-centeredness, Gospel-empowered living, they are mature. They are Christ-like. They together show Christ. That's what the text, I think, teaches. Peter O'Brien, a trustworthy theologian, missionary and pastor, says, this destination to which all believers are headed is understood as a corporate entity. And this quote's in your notes. It is not described in individual terms, but refers to the totality of believers as the body of Christ. The goal here is not mature men and women. The goal is not even a conglomeration of Christ-like men and women. The goal here is as a group that God's people would be one in their maturity to the measure of the fullness of Christ. Christ Christ-likeness is a group experience. And Christ-likeness is a group effort. Not a singular effort. Not an individual effort. Christ-likeness is a Gospel-centered group experience and a Gospel-empowered group effort. And I'm going to talk more about what it means to be Gospel-centered and Gospel-empowered in the next part in the series. And that's a key element in this. It's not just a group effort. It's a Gospel-centered group effort. Gospel-empowered group effort. Take the group aspect away and you don't have Christ-likeness. Does that shake your world up a little bit? Shakes mine up a little bit. Because I don't think of life that way. I'm a Westerner. I live in the Western Hemisphere. I'm an American. Even more so, I'm a New Englander. And I don't conceive of life that way. I think it's part of human nature to do it, but I also think it's just part of what we grow up in, part of our culture. We are rigorously trained to think as individuals. Now, there are merits to that. I'm not trying to say forget the individual thing, become part of the blob. I'm not saying that. There's 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 merit to that. But we are rigorously trained to think that way. And when I wake up in the morning, my first thoughts are not, oh, I'm part of a corporate group. And then I start thinking that way. I think about myself. And I evaluate my day and what I'm going to do or what I need to do and what it's going to feel like to me And what's going to be the results for me? That's what I think like. Now, part of that's human nature, but part of that is just our culture and our mindset. And Ephesians 4 invades that in my life and says, no, that's not the Christian life. Your success, Paul, as a Christian, is not merely whether you walk with Christ and you obey God today, though that's important. Your success as a Christian is if you contribute and serve and are part of the whole body obeying and mirroring Christ as a group. Now the alternative in this section is described in verse 14. The alternative to a united group effort at Christlikeness is described this way so that we may no longer be children. The word can also be translated infants, babies. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. The alternative to a mature group, one mature man, is many immature and underdeveloped children who are disunited, detached, disenfranchised, pursuing their own agendas without much regard for the body. Not stable, but blown about. Not centered on the Gospel, but tossed by all the latest Christian fads and ideas and even worse, maybe heresies. That's the alternative. The alternative to... The mature man. The alternative to a group effort towards Christlikeness is individual children tossed to and fro. If you think you can be Christ-like on your own, you are deceiving yourself. You are deceiving yourself. Christlikeness cannot be attained. Full Christlikeness cannot be attained by any man, save Christ Himself, apart from a group effort. So don't deceive yourself. Scripture says the alternative here is to be a child. To be independent is to be a child. To be independent is to be tossed to and fro by the waves. To try to walk out your relationship with Christ on your own is contrary to the express will of God in Scripture. Contrary to what Ephesians 4 teaches. Now I say that because I want all of us to hear that, and myself included. I naturally gravitate to being independent. If you do a personality profile on me, you will find one of the things that my pipe does is lives independently. So I have to resist this drive in me. I have to continually face myself with this reality, Ephesians 4, that I can't do it on my own and it's pure deception to think so. I have to make effort. Now some of you guys do it naturally and that's great. My wife is one of those. She just naturally thinks of others much better than I do. And that's great, but regardless of your preference, regardless of your orientation, the call of God is the same. To pursue Christlikeness as a group. To avoid heresy. And heresy sometimes is just a shade away from the truth. It's a great quote there by Tozer. I won't read it, but Tozer basically says that, that heresy is just a matter of how you hold the truth sometimes. It's missing the right emphasis. You might know have all the truth, you might hold all the truth, but, but you accent something wrongly. And if you live as a child, independent, that's going to tend to happen. And you're going to get blown about. And our landscape is littered with this reality. All about us. are weak, struggling Christians. All about us, are weak, struggling churches. Now, I don't know all the reasons why, but I do believe that this is a key part of it. Is that we as Christians, the church at large, in New England I think especially, have not learned that you can't do it alone. It's a group effort around the Gospel. You've got to keep the Gospel central. That's key. And you've got to do it together. That's key. Throw either of those things out and we'll miss it. And I think there's too much evidence around us and too much evidence in our own lives. If not now, at least at some point in history. And I'll share some of my stories. I asked a pastor a little while back who had pastored some years outside of New England and then pastored in New England for a number of years, is still pastoring. I asked him, what differences do you see between where you were and where you are now? And he said, well, when we had some event as a church back in my home where I used to pastor, everyone would be there. And not just everyone would be there, everyone would be glad they were there. And now, the church is viewed as kind of an option. It's kind of viewed alongside the YMCA and baseball and your favorite TV series. It's another option among many. And so the church has to compete with that. And the result is when the church does something, it's sparsely attended. I think it was a great observation. And I don't share it because I think we need to get our attendance up. That's not the goal. The goal is our hearts. The goal is hearing Ephesians 4 and the call of God to be part of something that He considers very important. And I believe there are going to be times when we can't attend things. And, and at those times, the, a good question is, what is our heart? I know for us, as God has moved in our hearts in these things, my affection, my desire to be with you guys has grown and grown. We had to miss a Youth Fellowship the other Sunday because we had a very important family event. And, and though we love our family uh, and want to be with them, uh, we were heartbroken to miss it, to miss going to Youth Fellowship. And I think our kids were the same way. That's the sort of heart God wants to grow and is growing in us, and we're glad for that. Our, our schedule as a church is pretty, pretty easy, pretty light. And, and we do that by design because we believe it's more than just a meeting, more than just events. It's the whole life. We have really only three to four hours out of a 168-hour week that we ask people to be a part of. So I think it's very achievable, and you guys, by your faithfulness, demonstrate that. But is our heart in line with Ephesians 4? Do we long to be with God's people? Do we hear the call to be part of this group effort of what He's doing? For me, it's, it's been a, a process. I remember our first church and our, we were, became members of that first church and, and they had things a little more specific in their membership thing. They required actually a certain percentage of your Sundays to be there. and We don't, so don't sweat. But we do ask that our members be a regular part of our Sunday. But they had it with 60%. And I remember my reaction. I probably shared with this with a number of you before. My reaction was like, whoa, who do they think they are? 60%. What are they doing? That's kind of legalistic. That kind of invaded on my life a little bit. 60% is easy. But, but that's, that's what I thought. I was like, that, that's ridiculous. Because my orientation was individually. I thought, oh, that's going to mean I'm going to have to give up some Sundays at the beach that I don't want to give up. And I mean, nothing wrong with going to the beach. But, but it was really silly and it reflected my orientation. My lack of affection for what God was doing. My lack of understanding of Ephesians 4. But even at that time in my life, and certainly now, the very sweetest moments of my Christian life are all points of being part of a fellowship. My high points in my Christian life are not individual experiences before God, are not individual Christ-likeness, no, though I think there's some degree of that, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But, but my high point, when I look back on my life, and even at that point, when that 60% thing bothered me, they were all related to being part of a fellowship. They were all related to being in church. They were all related to having deep relationships in the context of the Gospel. All of them. And I think that's true. And that's by design. That's how God has designed it. And and if you look at history, really all the high points of Christianity have been when God has raised up such a group. When He has created people who together say, Amen, we love the Gospel. And we want to walk in the truth of that. So if you look at history... The early church. That, that was what characterized them. They were so significant in that that the world took notice. They changed the Roman world by their Christ-likeness. If you investigate history, you'll see just as what they did and, and how they lived, how they related to their neighbors, what they did with, with abandoned babies. just Their Christ-likeness shone. And they changed the world. Through the Reformation, certainly that was true as well. Before the Reformation, the Waldensians The Moravians, the Puritans, the Methodists, they have all been noted by this. And I believe a high point for me and for many of us is this church. Because it is the consistent experience of folks who come to us to see just this that we as a church understand this to a great degree. Now there's room to grow. So we don't want to rest on our laurels. But I think to a great degree, you guys demonstrate this. You guys have this in you. And so when people come here, they do see a Christ-likeness. It's consistent, the feedback I get from people. You guys love each other. You guys know how to love. You got, there's something here. People, people experience the living God in our midst. I want you to be encouraged by that. I hear that again and again. Just last week, someone who knows us, who was a guest here, said the grace of God is all over you guys. She observed Christ-likeness in our midst as we come together as a group around the Gospel. So be encouraged. God is doing that. But also be hungry for more. Understand this truth. Walk in this truth. May we grow more and more. May we resist this cultural trend, this natural trend, orientation we might have to live our lives independently. To consider the truth of Ephesians 4. To let it have its way. How aligned is your life with this truth? How aligned are you with this call to be devoted to this group project of being a mature body to shine Christ as a group? Are there any steps you need to take? Even baby steps to make changes. And for those of us who are progressing along in this, be encouraged, but also think, are there other things? Now I think you can hold things in a wrong way and not understand the individual aspects. And I don't have time to address that. If you have questions on that, I'd love to talk. I don't mean to say there's no room for the individual and individual devotion and so forth. But are there Patterns in your life that need to change to realign yourself. You see, we as a church purpose not to crowd out your schedule so that you can live your life in light of the whole church and do the the everyday thing. So that's why we have a fairly light schedule. But a question on the other side is are you crowding out the church with your schedule? Are there any things that you do that maybe you can change? And certainly if you're not able to make regular Sundays and for our members a regular part of care group, and that's somewhere between 25 and 75%, and I'm not going to give you a number, but if you're not able to do that, there's things you need to do. But, but are there, are there is there room in your schedule for some of the other aspects of corporate life? Just hanging out and enjoying company with one another. Relating to each other. Now, by and large, you guys excel at this, but... I want to encourage us to think. Are there steps? Are there adjustments we can make? And I don't ask you to do this because we're just kind of a group that likes to do stuff this way. This is just kind of the King of Grace thing. you know. If you're going to be in King of Grace, you're going to be tight with folks. If that's your your thinking, then talk to me because I don't want that to be your thinking. I want us to be convinced this is God's thing. And if it isn't God's thing, let me know because we don't want to do it. But if it is God's thing, God's thing. Let us do it. Let us trust in God. Let us look to Him. Let us follow Him. And I believe we all do this intuitively. We do think corporately. I mean, I know there's the drive to be individual, to live individually, and I do that. But, but one thing I'm aware of is one area in my life where I do think corporately very naturally is in my family. I tend to think corporately. I tend to wake up in the morning and think about how, how's Peg doing, how the kid's doing, what are we going to do today? I, th- I think corporately that way. And I think we do that we do that uh, naturally. And I think we need to expand that, to think of the church that way, to think corporately about the church. And and so I think corporately about my family. Just recently, for example, um, I've been thinking about a trampoline. And the reason I've thought about a trampoline for, for the past year or so is just that we used to have one, and it was so much fun. The kids loved it. And so, I mean, I, I, I don't really like the trampoline. Matter of fact, it hurts my legs when I get on it, so it wasn't for my baby it but i was thinking at times corporately it would be nice family wise it would be nice to get a trampoline again and so we prayed as a family and and we talked about it and and recently we got a trampoline for free actually given to us by somebody and you may not think that's a way to love my family but but i do And so this great delight I took that we got it, that God provided it. And the kids, I love watching them bounce on the trampoline. It's like fishing. I I love to fish. I like to watch my kids fish even better. Because God's put that in us. That's grace. And maybe for you, you you do that too, I'm sure, in different ways, thinking of what vacation we could do together. Well, I think the church is the ultimate family. Now, that's not to negate our biological family. That's very important but the church is the ultimate family. Long after our children are grown and doing their own families, the church family will exist. Long after the name Buckley is known, the family Buckley is known, long after my name is known, the church will be known. The church family will exist. Who here can name their parents? Most I hopefully all of us, okay? Who here can name our grandparents, their names? Who here can name their great-grandparents? Not me. Oh, that's really good. Great-great-grandparents. You don't know their great-grandparents' name? After all that work they put in and all the things they did for you and how important family life was to them, you forgot their names? Yeah, I mean, that's normal, isn't it? What about your great-great-grandchildren? They're not going to remember your name. But they're going to remember the heritage of walking with God's people. And they're most likely going to feel the impact of the investment you made in God's family. Long after our biological families, as important as they are, are gone, the ultimate family will endure. And so let us appropriately have the ultimate family on our mind. And to think corporately. To consider these truths in Ephesians 4. Let us hear God that's really what I want. I want us to hear God in this. I want us to make the changes we need to make before God in this. I'm not going to lay out legalistic rules for you. I don't think that will serve. I, if you want to know specifics, talk to someone. I can. We can talk specifics. But the bottom line is let, let this call be heard from God. And let us pursue this group effort He calls us to of building His family, of building this mature man. The band could come up as as I pray. Lord, we just thank You. We thank You for the grace that You give to us in the context of Your people. Lord, just Your goodness to us. Thank You for all the grace that's present here in diverse people. And Lord, we pray You would teach us how to be Your people. And Lord, we pray that You would make us as a group Christ-like, like You, Lord Jesus. That our love for one another, our love for You, our love for our community would shine brightly. That we would care for one another. We would walk in the depths of truth and glorious riches of the Gospel. And we would shine and share these riches to those around us, to this community. Build the mature man here, Lord, by Your grace and for Your glory. We thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen.